Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night. John Katsimatidis here, the number one show at 5 o'clock. You tune us in, we'll let you know what the heck is happening in the whole country, the world, etc., etc. And uh, the big news today is, well, it's no longer Queen Elizabeth is gonna, it has died. And can you believe it's King Charles at the age of 73? And Queen Camilla, hmm. uh, the uh, preview of the Elizabeth before she passed away, allowed Camilla to be named Queen hmm. by royal order. Is that what it means? In the studio, we have uh, Judge Richard Weinberg, we have uh, Ed Cox, and Governor David Patterson. And uh, maybe you have some, some insight on well, that. Well, yes. Trisha, I was talking to Trisha at age 13, met Queen Elizabeth. And what she remembers is she had beautiful, kind blue eyes. That's what she remembers. Wow. Now, how she many years ago was that? That was, uh, that was in 1959. So that's 60 years ago. Yeah. 60 years ago, the Queen... Is ninety six. That's thirty six years ago. She Queen was thirty six. Yeah. So and, I met Queen Elizabeth, John, in uh, <clears throat> July sixth, two thousand and nine. She came to lay a wreath at the World Trade Center, and we heard that Mayor Bloomberg was going to escort her in, but Mayor Bloomberg and the mayor's office was informed by the UN Protocol Office that the Queen is only escorted by Prince Philip. So then we heard that Bloomberg was going to greet her when she came in. But the World Trade Center is on state property, so the two governors, New York and New Jersey, are the first to, to meet the queen, and that became me because um, it was on New York side of the, the river. So Queen Elizabeth is uh, starting, to, they're starting to come in, and uh, Governor Christie says to me, if Bloomberg doesn't stand where he's supposed to stand, I want you to trip him. <laughs> and he said, and I will sit on him. So as Queen well, that could be a disaster. That could be a disaster, <laughs> especially him. So as Queen Elizabeth is coming up, I'm still looking at Christie. He's still giving me the thumbs up, like oh. you know, don't let Bloomberg stand in the wrong place. And, and you could actually see that thumb. He he was doing like this. All right, you know. So the uh, he's right next to me. So the 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 uh, Queen comes up to me, but I don't see her because I'm looking at Christie, and she touches my shoulder. And two days before, Michelle Obama had hugged the queen, which you never do. That was like big international news that Michelle Obama hugged the queen. But I thought, but I don't know what to do when the queen touches me. But uh, I eventually. Uh, Did you touch ta- back, Governor? Yeah. I, no, I didn't do that. Okay. I, we, we talked to her, and she was absolutely delightful. And she was, uh, uh, it was 98 degrees that day. And uh, I said to her, I guess we wanted to bring you a warm welcome, but this might be excessive. And she started laughing, and apparently the, <laughs> the queen never laughs. So they caught a picture of me and the queen laughing. So that's a... Uh, well, you brighten they, up people's day. Uh, we should all be so lucky to yes. die at the age of 96 peacefully and surrounded by our loved ones. She was the epitome of what a head of state should be. Mm-hmm. The epitome of it. Absolutely, and of grace. And elegance. Now, uh, now I'm talking about the serious stuff going on in uh, 
what do we call it? The opposite of civility, the opposite of elegance of what's going on here in the United States. Uh, we have Judge Napolitano introduce him. Yes, Judge Napolitano. I always say his name Napolitano. wrong. Napolitano. Napolitano. I want to say because he's from Naples, his family. Napolitano. And I mean, he was an analyst for Fox News, but now he's here with us. He also served as a New Jersey Superior Court judge. Welcome back to Cats and Night, Judge. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. And you have to know the way you pronounce my name is the way they pronounce it in Italy. So I know. It's music. it's music to my ears. Oh, good. Yeah, I know because um, my parents, they speak Italian too. And so I, I get like, I, I always like pronounce the names how they're supposed to, I guess, well, like the ethnic way. Naples was a, Naples was a. I've been a fan of Governor David Patterson and I've never had the privilege of working with him at Fox or elsewhere and it's a delight to be on with you governor. You didn't have well, thank you. You didn't have Chris Christie sit on you either, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I met Chris and Chris is a friend of mine, uh, I was on the bench and he was a young lawyer with a 32-inch waist. Uh, that was a long time ago. Oh, 100 years at least. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a really long time. So Steve Bannon, Judge, he surrendered today, and I just saw some video before. They perp-walked him, all the reporters. He says he's he has yet begun to fight, and, of course, he pled not guilty. What's your reaction to seeing all this? Is this normal for him to be perp-walked? This is a white-collar crime and all of this hoopla. I mean, couldn't he have just been quietly surrendered himself and call? I don't know. It just seems like a political circus at this point. You know, there was a time when uh, perp walks were um, invalidated in New York by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. That decision still stands, but the police and the prosecutors do it, uh, and they and they get away with it. He was handcuffed, uh, I, by the way. I'm not in favor of it, no matter who the defendant is, because it gives the impression to the public from among whom the jurors will be chosen that, that the defendant is guilty. I agree. On the other hand— um, you know, this is a very uh, unusual case because the very same acts were pardoned when they violated a federal statute, but they still stand when they violate a state statute. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has ruled that that is acceptable. The great it, it's, it's a fascinating decision, seven to two by the Supreme Court. It's fascinating because it involves a guy who was caught with a gun in his, the trunk of his car, and he was a convicted felon, had served his time, was, was free, but as a convicted felon, you can't own a gun. He was prosecuted by the state of Alabama. While he's in jail in Alabama, the feds prosecute him, and his lawyers say, double jeopardy, it can't be prosecuting me twice for the very same act. Goes all the way to the Supreme Court, seven to two, Supreme Court says, yes, you can. Here's the dissent, written by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Wow. Consented to by Justice Neil Gorsuch. So you have the most liberal progressive member of the court at the time and the most libertarian conservative member of the court agreeing that the double jeopardy clause bars a second effort to prosecute, even if it's a different jurisdiction. Now, that's the dissent. That's not the law. The law is that even though uh, Bannon was pardoned by former President Trump, for the alleged federal crime, and even though the very same act triggered both prosecutions, he can be prosecuted uh, by the state. Your Honor, I was talking to Judge Weinberg about this. If we get away from the legal aspect of it, it actually wasn't even a good political move because once you've indicted Steve Bannon, that's all anyone really has to know at that point. By giving him the perk walk, it gave him a chance to start stating his defense. 
and Correct. everybody got to listen to it. So it not only may, as you point out, may actually legally, even though it's allowed, this may be overturned one day, but also I think it was just bad judgment. Well, it's, it's uh, Richard Weinberg, uh, Judge. It seems, to, it seems to me that there's a larger problem, which is the public perception. If Alvin Bragg thinks this is so important to utilize his resources in a town that's going wild, that's lawless, why are we prosecuting Bannon on this when we should be paying attention to the real public safety issues? Well, that, that is, as, as the governor just said, that, that is a political question. Is Alvin Bragg even worthy of his office when he's expending uh, resources on something like this as opposed to, uh, a, a, you know, daily living in New York and crimes that interfere with, uh, with the person and with property? Your Honor, Ed Cox here. Wasn't there a provision in New York law that that said you cannot have double jeopardy in New York if, in fact, uh, you are uh, not guilty uh, in a federal court? So when Paul Manafort was – that's a great question, Ed. And uh, you all should know that Ed and I were at Princeton together, even though I look 10 years older than he does. (laughs) Older than I am, but he's got that baby face. God bless him. I realize this is radio. You haven't seen the portrait of my cellar. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So um, when Paul Manafort was convicted by the feds and then the state indicted him, state of New York, for the very same um, mortgage shenanigans that the feds convicted him for, for which he was ultimately pardoned by uh, then-President Trump. The Court of Appeals of the state of New York, which is the highest court in the state, invalidated uh, the prosecution and said, this is too close. This is just too close to the uh, trial that he just went through. We're going to throw it out. Yeah, but Bannon and, didn't go to trial, did he? He was pardoned no. before he was convicted. Am I right? No, no, no. no. He was pardoned by Trump after he was convicted and after he had served a little bit of time. Trump was advised to do those pardons at the end of his term for fear that they would affect his reelection chances. So Paul actually served some time uh, before he was he was pardoned. Then this uh, this state prosecution came up. Then the Court of Appeals threw it out. Then then Governor Andrew Cuomo and the legislature enacted legislation expressly permitting this type of prosecution. So I don't think that Court of Appeals case will help Steve Bannon because the law has changed since then. I mean, it's the type of law that obviously was written to target a certain class of people. And and when the court cons- reviews those types of law, it does it, you know, with a fine tooth comb. But I believe that that law is constitutional and will be upheld, and Bannon will have to face a jury. Now, the other big piece of news today, uh, Judge, is the Justice Department, The they have filed an appeal, officially trying to overturn the judge's order for a special master in the Trump raid case. Do you think they'll succeed? I do think they'll succeed, and I'm glad they filed the appeal. This case, is uh, this opinion, is such an outlier. Republicans, Democrats, uh, liberals, conservatives, Progressives, libertarians, all across the the political spectrum in the legal and judicial worlds, I don't know how Judge Weinberg and Governor Patterson feel about it, uh, have been critical of her. This is basically a judge saying to prosecutors, you have to stop your prosecution on the basis of documents that I haven't even seen. She simply doesn't have the authority to do that. And as a practical matter, 
it's too little, too late. The feds have already reviewed these documents, and the CIA has reviewed these documents. If you want a special master to review documents taken from you by the government, whether it's state, local, or federal, you have to have your lawyers move while the search is going on. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Are not surrendered to the prosecutorial authority, but to the special master. In this case, Trump's people asked for it. Two weeks weeks later. later. Two weeks later. Right. The feds had gone through everything by then. So all she's done uh, is interfere with with an ordinary prosecution. She, the judge, it's a rookie mistake. She's probably a good judge, but she's new at this. She doesn't have the authority to do it. I think the um, 11th Circuit, which meets in Atlanta, uh, will reverse her as soon as the papers are filed. Uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz was on the program on on Tuesday, and he's his objection to this process was that he said this was a general warrant, which was unconstitutional. What's your thoughts on that? What was a general warrant? The search warrant? Yes, yes that's his position. Well, so general warrants are unconstitutional, but this was not a general warrant. I love Alan, as you know, and he's a brilliant uh, legal scholar. We usually agree on these civil liberties issues. A general warrant says search where you want and seize whatever you find. That's what the British used to issue to British judges when looking uh, to see if Americans had bought stamps to comply with the Stamp Act. This is 1765 now. Uh, But this a warrant that specifically describes the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. I'm I'm as Judge Weinberg knows, I'm quoting from the Fourth Amendment is is not a general warrant and is constitutional. And that's what this one does. So why did they seize his passport, Your Honor? Well, that was wrong. It's wrong to take uh, personal uh, property, and they returned them uh, as soon as possible. Do you think he think Trump. they were interested when he might have traveled to Russia or something like that, having to do with something that's irrelevant to the warrant? I hope not. But if they were, that was improper, and he has a cause of action against them for it. Look, a passport's a passport. It's absolutely clear what it is. It, it has nothing to do with the search warrant uh, or with the top secret documents that they found. Look, this latest thing is is devastating. If this leak from the DOJ to the Justice Department is accurate, if he literally had nuclear secrets uh, on his desk, that's the crown jewel of what the government protects. And these are nuclear secrets of another country. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Judge Napolitano. Thank you for all that you do. And uh, when should we expect a decision by the appeals court? Oh, well, they didn't file an emergent appeal, but I think they're probably going to file an emergent one very soon. If they take their time, it'll be a month. If they file an emergent appeal, you'll know in a week. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We'll uh, probably call you back. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Keep it right here. Cats and Night coming up. We'll be talking about the migrant crisis that's now happening all across the country. We'll also be talking about crime. We'll talk about the latest polls when it comes to make America great again. We'll talk a little bit more about the queen. Keep it here. John Katzmatidi show Cats at Night. Okay. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. Now we're going to be talking about the migrant crisis. Earlier today, the mayor of Washington, D.C. declared a public health emergency because about 8,000 migrants have arrived at her doorstep, courtesy of Governor Abbott, in the last five months. But to put that in perspective, Eagle Pass, Texas, they get about 30, which is about a population of about 30,000. They're getting 10,000 migrants a week. 
And then, of course, New York City, too. Mayor Adams, he's also upset about the migrants. Is this sustainable? On the line with us right now is Daniel DiMartino of the Manhattan Institute, and he has a very firsthand perspective on everything that's going on. He's a Venezuelan freedom activist and economist, and he was also born and raised in Venezuela, where he experienced the terrible consequences of socialism firsthand. Welcome to Cats at Night, Daniel DiMartino. Thank you for having me. So, Daniel, what goes through your mind when you see, like, all of these migrants just pouring in across the border? Well, the, the first thing is the, the sadness that it brings me that most of the ones that really are making it up here to New York City are actually from my home country of Venezuela. And, and that is because of all the destruction that the Maduro regime has caused in, in my country, and that so many people are willing to make that, that trip, not just from Central America, but down from South America by foot up to Mexico and then here. And, and what we're seeing now is that because Texas is obviously offering these migrants a, a free bus ride to New York City, they're coming here. And most of these people are, are people who have no family members and therefore own, their only choice is to to end up staying in a, in a shelter. And that's destroying, you know, that, that, that's really, we're not capable of, of getting as many migrants and putting them in shelters. We're not setting them up for success. We're setting them up for failure, right? Because imagine that you are somebody who doesn't know the language. You get to the United States without knowing anyone. And the first thing that they do is that you come to, you, they bring you to New York City and they put you in a homeless shelter full of gangs, drugs, criminals. We're basically setting up these illegal migrants or asylum seekers to become criminals themselves. You're 100 percent right. And that's why we could possibly be seeing another resurgence of MS-13. Almost every single one of those teenagers came here as unaccompanied minors because they have been set up for failure without any family, without any friends. And people want to belong. They have to make a living. So they they join a gang. What do you think about the mayor of D.C. calling it a public health crisis and they're basically a border town? And meanwhile, as I just mentioned, you got towns in Texas. They're getting 10,000 migrants a week. Yeah. Uh, well, I certainly don't think that it's it's about health. I think that that's just a political that it allows them to move, mobilize federal resources to help with the the taking of these migrants. Now, if if I were in charge of the city, I think that the city needs to manage as best as it can given the circumstances, right? And so, if we want to minimize crime, if we want to maximize the the potential opportunities for these people so that they don't become burdens to to the city and society, the first and easiest thing we can do is to try to communicate with those migrants who come here, bring translators, bring people who speak Spanish and ask them if they have any sort of friend or family member in the U.S. where we could take them instead. Um, you know, if, if they have a sibling that lives in North Carolina or a grandparent that lives in Kansas or, or somewhere else in New York State, then that's a better place for them to stay than in a homeless shelter in New York City. And that's that's an easy first step. Uh, Mr. DiMartino, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. I would respectfully say to you, that the problem isn't Abbott sending people to uh, Washington, D.C., New York. The problem is the Biden administration failing to uphold the immigration law and protect the borders of the United States. Without safe borders, you cannot have national sovereignty or a country. And that's the failure of the Biden administration. It's not Abbott. If I were a political advisor, Abbott, he's making the point that it's coming into our country. Nobody's doing anything about it. And the only reason they're raising the issue is now impacting Washington, D.C., and New York. 
So Abbott so is I, right. I, I, I 100 percent agree uh, that the law needs to be enforced. And, and ideally, we would have an illegal immigration of zero. Yet uh, the, the problem now is that the law actually says that people who show up at the ports of entry and or, or who cross the border once they're here, they have a right to seek asylum. So that's so that's what the law says now. So if we wanted to change that, we would need to change the law and to change the incentives for people coming here so that there is a legal process. Uh, unfortunately, th- this is the situation we're in. Um, I think I also think that Abbott's doing what's best for Texas, probably. Right. Because uh, they're, they're sending the people who don't want to stay in Texas at no cost to other places. So that reduces the burden on Texas taxpayers. New York City is also doing something wrong. It's not just about federal policy. What you know, New York City is, is a state that is providing all these migrants with a lot of government benefits that are not provided in Texas, are not provided in Florida, and so you're going to get free housing. You might as well come to New York City rather than go to Texas. How long is the free housing in New York? How long ha, ha, have I been living in New York? No, no. no, no. How long is when the they get housing? the free housing? How long does does that benefit stay in place? One month, two months, three months, or in perpetuity? Perpetuity. So if you're a homeless person, it's in perpetuity uh, because of it's actually because of the New York State Supreme Court that requires the state to provide anybody who is homeless to with with a place to sleep at night. And so technically, these migrants could live off of welfare and and government benefits forever. Okay, so if the Biden administration keeps letting them in through the border and ABBA keeps sending them they're going to break the city of New York and Washington, D.C. And because Democrat, Biden will not are you protect the border. The Democratic Congress and the Democratic Senate have passed a law allowing this to happen. But that's the law. If you come in through a port of entry, you well, are allowed you, to come into the country and then you can try borders, to seek asylum. Yeah, but but the, the problem is, is once the Rio they Grande a port of entry? I, I mean, no, the, the, problem, the problem with the asylum process is yeah. that they're letting them in quickly to wait for their asylum cases they, because oof. it takes so long to hear back from asylum. That's, that's why Remain in Mexico made sense. Well, what would make sense if we wanted to fix this issue permanently would be to process the asylum cases faster. And, to, and there's actually, there are actually bipartisan solutions out there to do this. But, of course, you know, all these nonprofits who are benefiting from these grants to process the asylum seekers wouldn't benefit from that. So they both pro-immigration and anti-immigration groups lobby against these bills. But the bills would uh, basically assign more immigration judges to to process the cases faster. So there would be no need to even let people inside the country to to wait for their hearing. And then once they do file for asylum, I think what is the statistic like over 90 something percent do not qualify. But how many of them are kind of poof in the wind? At that point. Right. So so about 90 percent get denied of the cases that are decided. Um, but it depends on the nationality. So a lot of the people who come to New York City, at least are Venezuelan, it's about 50 percent who are denied and 50 percent are approved. Um, and But re- regardless, that would ease the burden. And then it would also make the system fairer. Um, and, and if we wanted to reduce the flow of illegal migration in the first place, we would need to, to do policies such as the ones that we have for Cuba, where we allow Cubans in the, already in the United States to call yeah. to sponsor their family members only. Not- Thank you, Daniel DiMartino. And uh, we're coming up on a break, and we're going to be going to Lou Dobbs. That will give us a financial report. Let's go to Lou Dobbs. 
This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. In studio, we have Governor David Patterson. We have also with us Ed Cox, former GOP chair for 10 years, Judge Richard Weinberg. Of course, John Katzmatidis and myself, Lydia Serrani, now on the line with us. We have Gary McCarthy. He's a former police superintendent of Chicago. That's basically a police chief there. He's also a high-ranking cop here in the NYPD as well. And we're going to talk about crime. Uh, I guess, should I call you chief? Commissioner? What should I call you? That that works. Well, I've been a chief, a commissioner, a deputy commissioner, and a director. You forgot Newark. Newark, (laughs) too. Police director, yeah. Yeah. So, pick, so pick a title. Top cop. Call me, call me Gary. Okay, right. <laughs> it works for us. So Gary in in Chicago and in so many cities across the country, there there it was a bloody Labor Day weekend. Ten people were killed in Chicago alone. Forty six wounded. We saw here in New York. There's the shootings. A 15 year old boy was shot after school near our playgrounds, and they're now saying it was gang related. I feel like because of COVID, we're seeing so many out-of-control teenagers. What the heck is going on, especially with the gangs? Because that is, correct me if I'm wrong, that's where we're seeing a lot of this violence coming from. Well, definitely in Chicago, that's the case. The the difference between the New York violence and the the Chicago violence is palpable in that um, you're born into a gang here. Your Your dad was a gang member. Your grandfather was a gang member. And therefore, you have arch rivals who were in the same positions. These gangs have been going back and forth for decades, and, and they splintered when they took out the leaders of it, uh, when, the, when the feds came in, took out the leaders of it. And now um, it's these smaller splinter gangs, all young kids. And there's so many young kids getting shot in Chicago, it's crazy. But, you know, the, the problem is this. Statistics lie, right? And damn statistics, as Mark Twain said. And people out here are talking about the fact that, well, it's down from last year. Well, last year it was at an all-time high, and you have to go back to the beginning of Lightfoot's term and take a look at the fact that crime is up. I don't even know what the numbers are because they hide them. Um, But the fear of crime is something that is palpable here in Chicago. And I remember when I was deputy commissioner in New York, um, I remember when Bill Bratton came to New York and, and Rudy Giuliani were talking about not just reducing crime, but reducing the fear of crime. The fear of crime in Chicago is overwhelming. Um, I worry about my wife going downtown, quite frankly. And and everybody in Chicago talks about the fear of crime, which is something that is going to take a long time to turn around because the murder rate is up 100 percent from the beginning of December 2015 when Rahm Emanuel sent me packing. So the politics of Chicago is what holds it back. We need somebody to step up and and take control of what's happening here instead of just emboldening criminals and hamstringing the police, which is happening across the country. In so Chicago- tell us about the politics in Chicago. Why, why is it causing the, this crime level, to, which is already high, to get even even worse? Well, so you have to go back a long way. Uh, to understand how Chicago was kind of built. It was redlined and segregated uh, going back to the to the 40s and 50s when there was a migration of African-Americans that came up to Chicago from places like Mississippi. Um, that built ghettos, quite frankly. And people have been trying to recover since then. We had it on track, and then one bad shooting, Rahm Emanuel cuts me loose, even though we were at 1965 murder rates when I was superintendent. It immediately shot up 
200 more murders next year, and, and now it's up 100%. So, you know, politicians saving themselves instead of politics, instead of performance. I always learned performance in the NYPD. That's how I made it to the top of the NYPD. Uh, I worked for Cory Booker in Newark, New Jersey. Performance got him to be a, a, a senator. Um, and here, my performance meant absolutely nothing. And we always uh, talk about proactive policing. I think that's also part of the problem because a lot of the gang activity and all of these crimes, they keep happening in the same neighborhoods, right? It's called the South Ward in, in Chicago, correct? Well, yes and no. One okay. of the things that Lori Lightfoot, uh, traditionally that's been the case. But when Lori Lightfoot became the mayor, she created the term safety gap. And she's talking about the south side of Chicago being more dangerous the south and the west side being more dangerous in downtown or places like Lincoln Park or, or you know, other, other neighborhoods in Chicago. What has happened here, unfortunately, is she has succeeded in narrowing the safety gap. Those neighborhoods now, they're shooting all the time. That's why people are afraid. The problem is what she was talking about was stopping African-Americans from being victims and offenders of crime. And 85% offenders, 85% of our victims happen to be African-American. The same people are now getting shot in different places. The people who are getting shot on Michigan Avenue and Lincoln Park are generally from the south and west side. Neighborhoods that used to be safe are now not safe because the criminals have been emboldened. They go where they want. They're Day, daytime gunpoint robberies, so on and so forth. The, 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 the landscape has been made such by the politics here. And what about uh, what about here in New York City? I mean, we're, we're seeing a, a resurgence in these kind of random attacks. I mean, a 34-year-old guy is just walking down the street, gets knifed in the stomach, people getting attacked on the subway. An 82-year-old guy in lower Manhattan was hit in the head with a machete, and that woman who who did it, thank God they were two transit cops, they quickly arrested her and come to find out she just attacked somebody with a knife and a machete just like the week before. So we're seeing these constant repeat offenders, like you just said, where people are, you know, attacked for simply walking down the street in the middle of the day. Well, I think that this has a lot to do with woke prosecutions, quite frankly. And, you know, everybody knows the story that the, <clears throat> there's big money that's backing uh, these prosecutors across the country here here in in Cook County, we have Kim Fox and, you know, two words to explain that Jesse Smollett. Right. I don't know how this woman is still in office, yes. how she how she hasn't been disbarred based upon her lack of prosecution of Jesse Smollett. Well, that's no different than anybody else who goes through the system here. People are not being held accountable for their behaviors. Therefore, they're doing it again, again and again. And, you know, we see this all across the city, well, whether it's Chicago or, or New York or Los Angeles, Houston, Philadelphia. Just keep going. All right. Commissioner, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. I'll tell you, in New York, it's even more complicated because we have a runaway state legislature who's taken away any kind of meaningful discretion to judges to hold people in on a standard of dangerousness. You have to use the least restrictive means to hold them in. Then if they can't uh, afford bail, you have to let them out. Anyway, it's jamming up the system enormously. You have the woke DAs. The good news is that at least some people are trying to respond. Uh, John Kasmatidis met this morning with the Attorney General of uh, of Virginia, 
and they're trying to fight back by funding campaigns, campaigns against these woke prosecutors, trying to get people who are committed to protecting the public to be elected as the prosecutors. And that may turn things around, but it's going to take a while. Well, Judge, that's that is actually the same thing here. Uh, last year, Governor Pritzker, and I'm only talking about the legislation. Um, Governor Pritzker actually signed a bill called the Safe T Act, which basically, again, hamstrings the police. Uh, it eliminates um, mandatory jail for certain offenses. You can commit a murder. You could be accused of murder and walk out the same day that you are arraigned without even posting a bond starting in 2023. So things are about to get a lot worse rather than a lot better based upon the laws. You can't legislate good policing. I don't know how to say this any differently. Policies have to come into play within police departments that are going to make police departments do what they need to do. I saw this happen up front when Bill Bratton came to New York City and it was continued by Howard Safer, it was continued by, by uh, Bernie Carrick, it was continued by Ray Kelly, and I worked for every single one of those men. But at the same time, we didn't have the restrictive leg- legislation that we're seeing, which is going across the country, because it seems to me, and this is what happened in Chicago, because I ran for mayor last time around against Laurie Lightfoot, and we only had a 30% turnout in the first election that didn't involve well, it did involve one of the dailies uh, or Rahm Emanuel. So it was a very important election here in Chicago, less, less than a 35 percent turnout. And the people who turned out were obviously the leftists who ran uh, Tony Preckwinkle against Laurie Lightfoot. We got so, less of a know, turnout in New York. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, 35 so is a good number. Yeah. Where is the outrage from John Q. Citizen? They talk about it all the time. Everybody feels it. But if you don't vote, it's not going to change. Absolutely correct. Thank you, uh, uh, Gary McCarthy. Gary McCarthy. But are we calling him chief or <laughs> are we calling him commissioner? commissioner? What are we doing? I, loved every, I love every one of those titles. <laughs> well, uh, we had a big uh, 100th year anniversary yesterday uh, for uh, WABC. Uh, WABC. And we had uh, Howard Safer was there. I got to see him. And, yeah, uh, great, great man. Great man. man. Love him to death. And Ray Kelly was there, too. Ray Kelly. Yep. Same thing. Uh, uh, worked seven years for both of them as their right-hand guy. Thank you so much. And uh, come back to New York sometime. We need you. Take care. Let's go to uh, Nicholas Howard. He is the CEO of the creation of the Queen Elizabeth, a September 11th garden. Of course, we're going to talk about Queen Elizabeth. She died at the age of 96. I mean, I can't believe she was the queen for 70 years Finally, Prince Charles and I guess uh, Camilla, right? They get their turn to uh, reign supreme. Welcome to Cats at Night, Nicholas Howard. Hi there. And uh, hi, John. It's, uh, you were very much a big part of helping us build the Queen Elizabeth II September the 11th Garden, which was the memorial to uh, memorialize the 250 British Commonwealth citizens who were killed on that horrible day, leaving... Uh, lot of widows and 500 orphans and uh, we built it we're going to commemorate their pass their passing on uh, on Sunday and uh, the, you know, the, we, the queen actually gave, allowed us to take her name and put it on that city park in Hanover Square one block south of uh, Wall Street and 
it was a great day in uh, 2000, August 2010 when she came to open the uh, the memorial. She came and uh, Matt Bloomberg brought her to the park. And uh, a lot of us were there. It was a very boiling hot day. It was probably about 105. And there she was, aged 84, opening the garden, meeting a lot of people who had uh, got it got it started. And, um, you, know, um, you know, she was uh, tre- tremendously supportive. And, you know, this was typical of Queen Elizabeth II. She was really the, the rock on which modern Britain was built. And, uh, you know, she was a young woman at World War Two. She saw that horrific war and the damage in London and was bombed. And then she really steered the country through the Cold War. She was the queen. The, you know, she's the constitutional monarch, the head of state for 56 Commonwealth countries. And uh, she basically built the organization that grew to 56 countries as Different colonies became independent countries, but then became part of the Commonwealth. So Canada, Australia, India, Bangladesh, Nigeria, Malaysia, um, Trinidad, Jamaica, you know, the list goes on and on. And and she really built that organization um, during her 70 years of uh, being being the being the queen. So, Mr. Howard, she is the this is Ed Cox. She is. The head of state, not just for for Britain, but also for all those countries. What does that mean yeah. to be head of state, and what are the restrictions well, she, uh, that are on well, a head of state? Informal yeah, restrictions. I mean, I mean, effectively, she is the constitutional monarch for a number of those states, not all of them. Um, but she, you know, for example, in in Britain, obviously, she has a, fu- a significant function, which. The prime minister, you know, basically reports to her. Now, the prime minister is like the speaker, and so she's really like the unelected president, and she's sat in that seat for 70 years. And now, with regard to the Commonwealth countries, like Canada, she's the head of state for Canada. She's the head of state for Australia. She will have a governor general. You know, they don't have a lot of power, but they are, you know, the constitutional heads of state. But they can't get and involved she, in, in politics in those countries, or even Britain. They can't. They're not supposed to. No, address they, politics. They, they don't get in, that involved in politics. They do an awful lot on the public, in the, in the public eye. So for you know her seventy years, we, we think we've calculated she had thirty thousand public engagement. She visited one hundred sixteen countries. She did seventy eight state visits. She was the president and patron of six hundred charities. So, you know, she had an amazing sense of public service and and, uh, and duty and uh, really modernized the, the constitutional monarchy in the UK. And, uh, you know, was a, a really an important leader, um, you know, low key because of her constitutional role, um, but um, you know, a, a, a leader nevertheless, an inspiring figure. Even until her mid early nineties, you know, during the COVID, she helped rally the rally the UK, and uh, you know, with you know, public broadcasts, she's probably uh, one of the the probably the most experienced broadcaster uh, from the point of view of somebody who was a head of state. I mean, she started the first public broadcaster head of state was nineteen fifty two. The beginning of television, really. Yeah. So she was, and uh, when you think of 
Congratulations, John, not only on your birthday, but also on the 100th anniversary. Um, when you think about it, you know, 100, 100 years is a long time. She lived for ni- 96 years of WABC's 100th That's it. That's it. She was there. there she had go. the longest term of any monarch anywhere. Yeah. Any, any monarch yeah. anywhere. The only person in a longer term than Queen Elizabeth was a guy named Louis Fourteenth of France, and the reason he beat her is because he became king at age four. Wow. Ah, <laughs> right. That's some Thank bad. you, Governor yeah. Patterson. Yes, 77 now, years. The last said. question, and we have to take a, a break, uh, Nick. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Is there any resistance uh, uh, to Camilla becoming queen? No, I think, uh, again, um, Queen Elizabeth II did a masterful job in getting the country comfortable. Obviously, there was tremendous, uh, you know, consternation, anxiety, and displeasure for the British people about, you know, their beloved uh, Princess Diana. And, you know, uh, it was a long time until people became calmer about, uh, you know, the passing of Princess Diana. And, you know, obviously, there was many, many years when, uh, Camilla uh, Parker Bowles, as she was then, and is now the Duchess of Cornwall, was, you know, it took her a while to get past that. But I think the Queen helped her with that. And now she's become a, quite an important figure in the UK. And I think people see her as someone last, also last question, de- question. dedicated to public service. If, if, if a bus hits Prince Charles, does she become Queen with absolute power? No. No. no, no, she's a queen consort. His, his son, Prince William. So if a bus hits, uh, something happens to Prince Charles, who's seventy-three years old, then the next yep. step William. is goes to Prince William, and then Prince, Prince George, then Princess Charlotte, and then Prince Louis. Correct. All right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly she right. Be pre- so I guess she could be a consort. Somebody has to keep the somebody has to king keep the king happy. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And John, one last thing. You yes. know, as you know, Prince Charles is the patron of the Queen Elizabeth Garden down at Hanover Square in New York. And he's been very involved with us over many, many years, helping us raise the money to put that uh, lovely park together. And so the only question we have here now is who will become the new patron? Will it be Prince William or will it be one of the other you know, senior royal family members? Because that's an active park. It's a beautiful park. We encourage people to go visit uh, the Queen Elizabeth the Garden at Hanover Square. There will be people there tonight. Uh, there's a candlelit vigil starting tonight. Uh, people will be putting you know, flowers to commemorate her passing and her superb work. And she was very critical to the special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom and the British Commonwealth. And she'll be greatly missed. You're absolutely correct. Thank you so much. Uh, and um, we'll talk to you again real soon. And uh, whenever you have something to report, please text us. And Nicholas Howard, you'll, we'll be there for you. John, thank you as also and to your wonderful radio station. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, keep it right here. Up next, John McLaughlin. Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. While we wait for John McLaughlin, I want to let everyone know about this startling new poll that Reuters just released. One in four Republicans, Republicans think MAGA, Make America Great Again, is now a threat to democracy. What 
What is going on? Oh, we got McLaughlin on. John McLaughlin, the poster. I asked John McLaughlin. I mean, he's a, yep. he's he's a poster. poster president. Yep. John McLaughlin, we were just talking about that Reuters poll that says one in four Republicans think MAGA is a threat to democracy. What do you make of it? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those biased surveys that skewed towards the Democrats. And you, by the way, you're seeing a lot of those surveys right now. There's a poll out like a Marist NPR poll that only has 29% Republicans as registered voters. It's not likely voters. You're seeing, you're seeing a, uh, this Reuters poll, and they're skewing towards the Democrats because they're really afraid because Larry Sabato today in uh, uh, Real Clear Politics put up a, a thing saying he went to two experts about doing analytics on what they project in the House, and they're expecting the Republicans to pick up 37 to 44 seats. And the Democrats are petrified of that because they know if the Republicans get the House, the, the, the investigations are going to go to the other side. And Joe Biden with Hunter's laptop and all that, they are pulling out all the stops to try to make sure that these bad polls are out there so that people get afraid to give to Republicans. And they're also uh, uh, they're also worried about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, if 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 they don't, if they do lose the House, the Republicans are really going to be in a very investigative mood. And Joe Biden and uh, Hunter Biden, you know, I mean, most people, there was a poll out today, Rasmussen, most people think that Biden should be impeached. I mean, so it depends upon how you word the question and how you structure the poll. And right now, some of these polls like the Reuters one are skewing towards the Democrats because I think they have a, a political agenda. 44 seats. Do you think Republicans could pick up 44 seats, John? Ed Cox here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Chairman. Mr. Well, you used to be the state chairman, but you, you know, you remember when in 94 I polled for uh, Haley Barber and Newt Gingrich, the yeah. House leadership, and uh, we won over 60 seats. And that was a plus seven generic. So you've seen you've seen polling where with the Republicans on the average, they have a um, you know, on the average, they have like a, a they're tied with the Democrats on the real clear politics average. But with those bias polls in there, um, you wonder if uh, uh, you wonder if these, the, you know, you're going to see the same kind of surge that we saw back in 94 that we also saw in 2010. That would where, that would give Republicans more than 255 seats. That That's all. But, John, let <laughs> me ask historic. John, it's Richard Weinberg. Let me ask you this question. What about the Senate races? Can the Republicans win the United States Senate? Absolutely. Because when you look at the ones that are in play, um, you know, you've got the Republican seats, North Carolina, they'll hold. Oz is now coming back against Fetterman. Fetterman's not coming out. He finally agreed to debate. Um, the Republicans are getting more aggressive. And when you look at the ones on the line, Laxalt is ahead in Nevada by the good polls I've seen. Uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia has gone from behind to slightly ahead by a point. Um, New Hampshire, they haven't picked the Republican candidate. That'll be next week's primary. But uh, Senator Hassan, the Democrat, is un well under 50. She's perceived as the most vulnerable. Arizona's in play. And you never know. They could pick up Richard Blumenthal, last poll I saw, who was at 45 percent. So he's what a you, long time incumbent. So, so, John, what do you think about the Trafalgar poll that puts uh, Lee Zeldin within four points of Kathy Hochul? Uh, that, the, the demographics and the way that's a majority Democrat poll, two to one. Uh, that's an accurate poll. They have him within four points. Wow. And if you don't agree with that analysis, 
Just look at what she's doing. She's spending $2 million this week and probably next week attacking Lee Zeldin uh, personally yeah, on the issue. commercials, yeah. Well, we, we, listen, we, we need New York to be safe, and that's what I think that's what all New Yorkers want. We're at the end of the show. John McLaughlin, thank you so much, and, uh, and uh, God bless America. And uh, what do we stand for in this show? Truth, Truth justice, justice, and the American, American way. way. God bless America. We need God's blessing. God save the queen. Now the king. The new queen? Oh, now the king. 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 Now the king.